Well, it probably doesn't uh, take very much of a reading in Isaiah 1 to realize we're in a completely different place in Scripture now. Uh, We're starting a study in the book of Isaiah, and I wanted to just give you a sense, especially if you're new, how how I figure out what it is we're exactly going to preach and cover, and it's a pretty uh, boring and predictable pattern, which I think is the accountability I need. We do a series in the Old Testament, we do a series in the New Testament, and then we do a series on a topic. Um, So do you want to guess where we are now? We're in the series on the Old Testament section. And why Isaiah? Well, because we haven't in a long time done anything with the minor prophets. And so we're going to be looking at Isaiah this morning. And I think you'll find it helpful if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 1. And beginning in verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And I think from the very beginning, we realize how much more challenging it is sometimes to read things out of the Old Testament because there's a lot of places that we might not be familiar with and a lot of names that we might not be familiar with. And so I want to make sure that we, we get a sense of where we are in Scripture and what Isaiah is doing. And so I just want to pull a few insights out of this first chapter. And the first is that we see here is that Isaiah's ministry spans the reigns of four kings. And so this means, first of all, that Isaiah takes place after the divided uh, kingdom. You have a time where um, Israel is united, and then after Solomon, you have this division. Ten tribes go to the northern part, and they are called Israel. And then you have these two tribes that become the southern um, part. And what uh, Isaiah is doing is he is doing ministry to this southern section, to Judea, and specifically he's going to be very interested in the things that are happening in Jerusalem. Now, here's a little cheat sheet and a side note on language in terms of Israel. Israel can be used in one of three ways in Isaiah and in a lot of places in the Old Testament. Number one, Israel can refer to collectively all of the people of God. Um, Israel can also refer specifically to those ten northern tribes. And Israel, most ironically, can sometimes be used in reference to the people of Judah, the southern tribe. So, the good news is, when you see the word Judah, it only ever refers to Judah, to the southern kingdom. So, as we read Isaiah, that's going to be one of the things that we'll need to figure out as to whom this mention of Israel is being um, recorded. In terms of timing, Uzziah died in 740. Uh, This is before Christ. And according to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah receives his commission when Uzziah died. And so it seems like his ministry would have began somewhere very close there to 740. We mentioned the last king died, uh, Hezekiah, in 686 BC. The last historical event, as Isaiah mentions, is the death of Sennacherib, which is in 681. So um, being very general with the numbers here, we're going to say that Isaiah's ministry was at least a 60-year span. And so as we're reading the book of Isaiah, we're reading a book that is covering this large span of 60 years. And the strange thing about Isaiah 1 is Isaiah 1 is not chronological in terms of one of the very first things that happens. Because remember, his commission came in what chapter? In chapter 6, he's told to go and preach. And so what is he doing in these first five chapters? It seems to me what makes the most sense is Isaiah's chapters 1 through 5 is an introduction to the book. 
This is taking some of the sermons that Isaiah would have preached later and brought it together and put it here so we have an idea of some of the themes and some of the topics that will be covered in the book of Isaiah. And so Isaiah 1, it kind of in, we, we insert ourselves into the history of Judah in an extremely low point. I want you to catch how Isaiah describes the situation beginning in the second part of verse 5. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores, bleeding wounds, they have not been drained or bound up or softened with oil. Typically, I encourage people to envision scriptures as being read. If you have a queasy stomach like mine, probably best not to do that. But it's not a very pleasant picture, is it? Now continuing, as Isaiah describes, so it's like your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, aliens devour your land. It is, de- it is desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And daughter Zion, that being Jerusalem, is like a booth in a vineyard, like a shelter in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. What seems to make the most sense as you talk about this kind of war-torn land is that we are looking at probably around 701 where you have um, Sennacherib's invasion of Judea. And so Isaiah begins long after the time of the prosperity of Isaiah. If there were a dark chapter, if there were a low point for Judah, this would be the time when Isaiah begins describing what that time was like. And people, when they, when they find themselves in a desperate situation, I can imagine that they would do much like we would do. It's very often whenever uh, things don't turn out the ways that we want them to turn out or the ways we wish, we often ask a question. And what question is that? Why? We, we find ourselves as, as, as innocent people who are uh, suffering and struggling under um, God's rule. And we look at these four nations and we wonder why are they surviving? And so one of the things that Isaiah wants to answer at the very beginning is, I'm going to tell you exactly why these things are happening to you, Judah. And I think it would be helpful as we remind ourselves of the fact that um, Israel is in a covenant relationship with God. You remember back in the book of Exodus, where the Israelites were brought out of Egypt. And there on, uh, at Mount Sinai, we see these words of God in Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the people. There's to be this agreement, this relationship, this covenant between God and Israel. And in response, Exodus 19, 7 and 8, so Moses came and he summoned the elders of the people and he set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And what did the people say? Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they agree to live under this covenant relationship with God, where God will turn them into a special nation and where they will live faithful to his teaching. And so then we have the rest of the book of Exodus. You have even into Deuteronomy. All these things are what is called the Torah. The commandments, the teachings. These are the terms of the covenant. And at the end of Deuteronomy, God has this to say. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That I have set before you life and death. Blessings and cursings. Israel has a future that they get to choose. One of those futures based on their obedience will be one that is full of blessing and life. And the other is if they choose to be disobedient to the terms of the covenant, then they will experience cursing and death. 
And so Judah is wondering, why are these bad things happening to us? And notice how Isaiah begins to explain it in verses 2 through 4. Hear, O heavens, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. And I'm starting by talking about covenant, even though ironically, Isaiah actually never directly mentions the word covenant. He never says we're in a covenant relationship. But if you look at these words that are used in these first uh, few verses, it's pretty clear that there are echoes and an understanding that Israel is in a covenant relationship. Notice how in verse, um, two, in verse 3, God speaks of my people. He's recognizing he has a special relationship with them. He calls himself not just the Holy One, but what Holy One? The Holy One of Israel. He is in a special and a unique relationship with Israel. But there's been a violation of the terms of the covenant. They have not kept what they said they would do in Exodus, nor what they said they would do in Deuteronomy. And so the format of these first few verses is of a covenant lawsuit. When two people who were in a covenant or two nations who were in a covenant, if one party broke that, the other would bring a covenant lawsuit. They would point out, here is how you have violated the terms of the agreement that we have come to. See, notice in chapter 1, verse 2, it begins, Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. You notice who God is calling to witness to this, the very same witness when the covenant was made. When the covenant was first made, God bore witness to the heavens and to the earth. So God is filing a lawsuit against Judah. So what did they do? What's God's accusation? What's God's concern about their behavior? And the first accusation has a focus on a broken relationship. God says, they have rebelled against me. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. When you're in a covenant with someone, they are to know you. They are to understand who you are. And it begins with this broken relationship. And once the relationship breaks, the byproduct of that is that Israel engages in sinful activity. So we have that in the middle section here. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly. And yet God's going to return once again to the core issue, which is the people have broken relationship. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. And these are words that are talking about a covenant that has been broken, forsaken. In other texts, it will be talking about um, abandoning. In other texts, it will talk about divorce. This is a word that's used there. So Israel has, in essence, has said, you know what, God, we don't really want anything to do with you. And it comes to a point where they are estranged from God. They separate themselves from God. They pull away from God. And so Isaiah makes clear that the sinful behavior is the byproduct of a broken relationship to God. You ever wonder, how do we get uh, sin to stop? How do we address a sin problem? And Isaiah's recognition for us would be, you have to go back to the source. You have to ask, what is the nature of your relationship with God? Because our actions are going to flow forward from that. You've probably heard the story. I think it's been 
Um, it's cycled probably through the internet and through friends. But there's a story about this group of people. They live in a village by a river. And as they go to the river in the morning to get waters, they, they, they always find there's all sorts of junk and stuff in the river. And so they have to get it out before they can get their water. And over the years, they've developed this really efficient system for getting all the garbage out of the river before they gather their water. They have a visitor come into the village and they go and they show him, they say, hey, here's all the cool systems we've come up with, with getting all the, the junk out of the water. And he says, have you ever walked up the river to find out where there's garbage in the river to start with? And they say, oh, no, we never thought about that. What Isaiah is saying is to deal with sin, you cannot start with the fact that there is sin. You have to go to the source. And the source is if there is a broken relationship with God, the natural outcome of that is going to be a sinful people. That's why things look bleak for Judah. God lays out his covenant with them, his problems. And it's as if Judah would say to God, then what do you want us to do? To which God would respond in 1.10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, which, by the way, is not a compliment. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. God says, what are we supposed to do? Torah. I have given you the commandments. I have given you the instruction. I have given you the way to live. And Judah, if they're paying close attention, if you've ever seen people saying, this is what's happening, and another says, this is what's happening, Judah is going to say this, Torah... Torah is full of all of these, what we could call cultic practices. These things that you told us that we need to do and be engaged in. The kinds of things that are outlined in verses 10 through 15. We are offering sacrifices. We are giving burnt offerings. We are participating in blood sacrifices, offering incense. We're participating in the new moon and Sabbath observance. We're engaging in prayer. And so Judah is going to say, you say we're not living according to Torah. Look at all the things we are doing. How does God feel about all these things? I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. And of the, the festivals, God says, my soul hates. So why aren't these things that Judah can point to to say, look, God, we're living under the covenant in the way that you wish? And I think to answer that, we need to remember, first of all, that Judah is in the midst of a worn, torn situation. And sometimes we get desperate and we say, okay, God, what, what is it that, that I'm going to, I can do in order to get a certain outcome or result? So what they do is they double down on all these cultic practices. They start saying, oh man, I've only been going to church once a week. I'm going to start going to church three times a week. Oh man, I've only been giving $10 a week. I'm going to start giving $20 a week. And so they start doubling down on all of these things and they think somehow that that's going to be pleasing and pleasurable to God. But the fact that that's what they're doubling down on illustrates what Isaiah has said in 1.3. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God raised Israel and Israel should know what is valuable and important to God. And yet they seem to, in their ways, they try to relate to God. They try to relate to him more like a pagan God. Idolatry is all about robotic rituals. The belief in the false gods is this belief that the gods have a power that they are willing to exchange for gifts. So all you need to learn to do is to figure out this predictable system. If you give A to the gods, then God, the gods will give you B. 
And if you can't figure it out, that's why they have these, these priests that you go to, the, the pagan priests, and you go and you say, hey, I, I want God to do A, so what do I need to do in order to get this God to do this certain outcome? They believe that these gods are predictable. In fact, they, they treat the, the gods, and, and these, these priests are kind of like the people who work at currency exchange booths. You go up to them and you say, hey, um, I want to get 100 Canadian dollars, and they say, give me 80 US dollars, we're going to convert that over. And so if I want a new job, what do I need to do? And they say, hey, two goats on that altar to that God, you're going to get yourself a new, um, a new job. And so the individual in the pagan system remains in the center. They get to control all the outcomes by just figuring out whatever currency that the gods like to use. And so Israel, in its relationship with God, is, is thinking, is approaching God with the same mentality as these pagan gods. What, what buttons do we need to push? What levers do we need to pull in order to get God to once again restore us? And they're showing they do not know God. What God prefers, what God appreciates. I mean, imagine somebody approaching a marriage in the same way. Imagine, husbands, if, if there was a way that you could figure out the currency and the language of your spouse. If there was somebody, you could just text and, and, and you send them a text and you say, I forgot my wife's birthday. And they send you a text back and they say, buy chocolates, two flowers, and buy some jewelry. Not from Walmart. And then you go and you do that and you say, well, okay, I've got this system figured out. I just send a text if I've done something wrong. They give me these practices that I need to do. And yet pretty clear it can become a realization that's not how people work. These predictable patterns to get the end results that you want. Robotic rituals don't work. They work for lifeless things. Robotic rituals work for things like light switches. You turn it on and the light goes on. But that's not how we relate to God because God is a living God. God is, as Isaiah calls him, the Holy One of Israel. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Mighty One. He is the Sovereign ruler. Judah needs to learn that they cannot reduce God to a manageable system where they can use God to get whatever outcomes they want. So if the strategy is not working, what's the hope for Judah? What what could they possibly do to make things right in their relationship with God? And here's the call that God gives them in Isaiah 16 and 17. Wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. Remove all the evil of your doings before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Essentially, using our language today, Isaiah is saying you're going to need to repent and return. Judah knows we don't clean ourselves, but the only way they're going to be able to wash themselves is by returning to the one who has the power to bring them cleansing. You see the language in Isaiah 18, in Isaiah 1:18. The first call is to come now. Let us reason together or let us argue it out. The very first thing they need to do is they need to come back to God. And what drives them to come back to God is this recognition of their need to repent. Their recognition that they have in fact violated the terms of the covenant. And if they return, there is a reason for hope. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
And you notice the tense of these words. What is currently happening is their sins are like scarlet. But there will be a time in the future where there will be cleansing and that there will be healing. So the pathway of the covenant is given to the people once again in verse 19 through 20. If you are willing to be an obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall devour, be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You notice how this is a conditional statement? Saying you get a choice in how you respond to God's initiative. And there are two choices. And the one, again, will lead to blessing. And the other will lead to cursing. Isaiah makes it clear that God's ultimate end is for hope for the people. But God is not afraid to use judgment as a vehicle to move us towards hope. We see this clearly in the passage that was read before the sermon in Isaiah 24 through 26. Therefore says the sovereign Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will pour out my wrath on my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. And then verse 25, I will turn my hand against you. Depending on your translation, what, what this is, is recognizing is not God's hand is coming to go against them, but God's going to turn his hand towards them. And when God turns his hand towards them, there's going to be a different outcome. He will smelt away the dross. He will restore the judges and the counselors and the beginning. And you shall be called a city of righteousness, the faithful city. See, the thing that it seems like when you read Isaiah is hard to know is are the people going to have a reason for hope or are they going to have judgment? And Isaiah is going to say, yes. Both of those things are in the future of Judah. You find the pattern, it, it, it continues through chapter 5. In verse, uh, chapter 1 is primarily messages of judgment. Chapter 2 will be messages of hope, at least in the early parts. Chapter 3 is going to be message of judgment. Chapter 4 is message of hope. Chapter 5 is message of judgment. Which is it? Isaiah is saying, judgment will continue until the people repent. And the judgment will become more and more intense. And it will become more and more severe until the people recognize that they themselves are the source of the judgment. But it moves always in the direction of hope. Even the entire book of uh, Isaiah can be broken up into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 39 speak mostly about judgment, and 40 through 66 speak about hope. Go home and, and read verse 39 and read verse 40. And you're like, whoa, something changed. The, the clouds somehow cleared. Something is different. And that's the direction God wants to move his people in, is the direction of hope. Have you experienced judgment? hardship, suffering. One of the things that we often want to do is we want to move through that as quickly as possible. But for God, these moments of judgment and hardship and suffering are informative for us. They can be ways that God is calling us back to Him, calling us back to His heart. Have you ever heard somebody say, that hardship or a suffering was the cause of their return to God. They got sentenced to a prison sentence, and that was the moment. They went through a divorce, and that was the moment. They lost a loved one, and that was the moment. See, God uses situations to try and call us to return to Him. 
And that's ultimately what God is longing for, is a renewal and a restoration, not just of Judah's relationship, but of our relationship as well. Notice how Jesus begins his ministry in the Gospel of Mark. He came proclaiming the good news, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is recognizing there that as he comes, that what is needed is repentance. And Isaiah calls people to repentance. The prophets call people to repentance. Jesus calls people to repentance because repentance is necessary. It is a recognition of our old way of living, of our old values that we're willing to give up. See, Isaiah has a message of hope and the New Testament has a message of hope. Peter says it this way, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Repentance is the point where one realizes, I've been living with my own values, my own purposes, my own way. I've been using all of these things to try to control a certain outcome from God, but now I'm ready to submit. I'm ready to tell God that his will must and should be done in my life. And so I want to give you an opportunity to consider your own decision of repentance this morning. Have you repented of your sinfulness, of your choices, and of your way of living? If not, in just a moment, we're going to, cha- we're going to sing a song together. And while we're singing that song, I invite you to come back if you've recognized you've never repented of your sin. Or perhaps you have repented, and you've, you've, you've been baptized, and yet you recognize there is more that you need to repent from. There's more turning away from an old way of living. God wants to move us to a place of hope, just like he did with the nation of Judah, but it begins with us recognizing, returning, and turning from our ways. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we leave from here, we leave with a reminder that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to respond in any way, go ahead and uh, come and find myself or one of the elders in the back while we stand and sing this next song.